there is a lot of content that you could be consuming right now. And if you're going to sit here for six minutes or eight minutes or 13 minutes, heaven forbid, I'm going to promise to you what I'm going to deliver. And then I'm going to deliver on that. Sky. Hey Jenny, you ready for season two? I am so ready for season two. I've been thinking about it a lot. I've been talking to people about it. The whole summer, right? The whole summer. I've been planning for it, dreaming about it. <laughs> it's because we have so many great people set to be on it. Wait, so should we like introduce ourselves to any new listeners? I think that's a good idea. Yeah. Okay. So I'm Jenny Butler. I'm a video journalist at Now This, and I'm also the host of this podcast. And I'm Sky Dylan Robbins, and I'm a visual journalist at NBC News, an experimental doc unit there called Left Field, and I'm the founder of the Video Consortium. So what is the Video Consortium? Can you remind us? Sure. The Video Consortium is a creative community of the world's leading video journalists and nonfiction filmmakers, documentarians. And our members are all over the world, but we have chapters in New York and LA and San Francisco and Washington, D.C. and Milan and Paris and now London. It's gotten bigger. It's gotten bigger and it continues to get bigger every month. And Rough Cut brings all of it together. Yeah, so this podcast, for any new listeners, is a series of conversations with documentary filmmakers, video journalists, anyone really in the nonfiction video space. So we felt like it was really appropriate to launch season two with Johnny Harris. And if you're not familiar with him, Johnny is a video journalist, but he kind of has this sort of vlogging style. Um, He has a show for Vox called Borders, where he basically lives in a contentious border area for several months and puts out a series of episodes focused on the issues and the people in that region. His most recent season was on the border of India and Pakistan. He's also done Hong Kong and Colombia and Venezuela. He also has a a personal YouTube page where he really has a lot of lessons to teach other video professionals, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have him on this podcast, because I felt like he had a a lot of interesting things to say and to teach people. Mm -hmm. And Borders has gone quite viral for Vox, and it's been very successful. And perhaps a lot of people find it really intriguing and interesting because it blends really hard, nuanced journalism with really cool graphics and animation and the cinematography. I mean, you guys talk about it, and it's so interesting what he reveals, but it's it's beautiful. It's Um, beautiful. And it's blending boots on the ground reporting with this run and gun GoPro, mm-hmm. almost like Casey Neistat <laughs> vlog style, mm-hmm. which we haven't really seen before and not on Vox. It's very unique to Vox as well. Totally. And the fact that he does it basically all himself is, you know. Yeah. He's the only one on the ground there. He has a team in New York. It's truly very impressive. Mm-hmm. It's also just crazy how, you know, Johnny doesn't really come from a background that you would expect from someone who's running their own show for a company as big as Vox. I mean, he didn't go to film school. He learned to do video as a wedding videographer. And he has a lot of really great advice on how to learn a new skill quickly under pressure. 
I love this interview so much. I found every part of it fascinating. So this is episode one of season two of Rough Cut. Hey, I'm Stephanie Strauss. I'm a video producer, director, and sometimes shooter, and I'm here to tell you about Musicbed. Musicbed has made it easier than ever for you to find the song you're looking for. With intuitive and easy-to-use browse and search, amazing indie artists and bands, incredible composers like Ryan Taubert and Chad Lawson, and thousands of songs to choose from. To create your free account and learn more, go to musicbed.com. Plus, as a Rough Cut listener, you'll get a one-month subscription for free, or 20% off a single song license. Just enter promo code ROUGHCUT when you check out. I'm really excited to have you on. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, of course. I'm excited to chat about this stuff. So you pitched Borders to your boss um, as like an in the field kind of like documentary explainer show, which is super different than most of the content on Vox Video. Vox Video is very like graphics heavy, like in-house production stuff. And obviously your boss went for it and invested in the idea. So how did you approach him and craft that pitch? Yeah, so what's interesting is at the beginning of Vox, there was kind of this this like obsession with experimenting and trying new things. And like we didn't know what the team was going to be and where it was going to go. Like what Joe, who was the founder of the team, and then subsequently Joss, who came on um pretty quickly thereafter had established was like, we make beautiful content that is conversational and rigorously explained. And uh, that's what we do. And it's usually like two minutes or three minutes, you know, it was like, that was kind of the precedent. But I think everyone knew that like, we were trying to like, see where where it was going to, going to evolve. And so at the beginning, um, it just felt like like a very natural thing to do to just like pitch this idea. And before borders, um, it was just, it was just the, it didn't have a name. It was just go out and make a doc, an explainer documentary in the field. And when I pitched that in 2015, I just kind of said like, well, why don't we ever leave the office? Like if we're going to report on stuff, what if we went out and like pointed our camera at stuff and got visual evidence and like, and, and gave like a human face to all these kind of big trends and things that we're talking about. And the answer was the answer to everyone, you know, at that time, which was like, we don't have a ton of resources as a startup. Like we're, we're, we're a small team. We're pumping out so much stuff. And so we can't like making documentaries in other countries is expensive. And so like we, we make them from our desks, you know, and, and, and there's a lot we can do from our desks. And so I basically said like, well, what if we just did a super lean like the way the in, the people on the internet make videos, just like they go and like they're like no one else is with them and they just make videos. And like, what if we just did kind of one man band thing? And Joe, my boss at the time was like so open to that. And he was like, yeah, pitch a cool idea. And if it works and if it's visual, like we'll go for it. And so that was, again, it felt very natural for the, for the environment and the culture at the time. And then I pitched this Cuba story, and that was the kind of entryway into this new format. Hmm. One man banning it in the field is really, really difficult. Like, you have to really hone your shooting production skills before you do something like that. Were you, like, confident about those skills when you pitched it? No, I I wasn't (laughs) at all. Um, I hadn't 
done any documentary work. Like I hadn't shot on set with any documentaries. The most I had done was like I shot I shot a lot of weddings mm-hmm. and I had and I had gone I had done one international project for like a think tank. Uh that was that was very different than like what I was proposing. What I did have though was kind of an obsession with like watching like Vimeo staff pick videos and like lean production single creator or small crew production type stuff and then watching vlogs like watching like Casey Neistat and like people who are just going around with like simple tools and like making fairly compelling and beautiful stuff and so between those two ingredients of like a a very honed like cinematography because of literally because of just weddings like shooting a million weddings like you just it's like the most not sexy thing but it's like you you get your hands on the tools for a million hours and between that and and having watched other creators on the internet and then and then i think the trust that vox gave me like saying like yeah go make this with the kind of mandate that it had to be worth the resources that they were spending and so i became obsessed with like how am i going to make this amazing and i think that kind of accountability really pushed me towards making something that I'd never done before and and making sure that it was something special and different. And I think it was like, I I look at that and like the amount of, of work and like creative development that happened in that short period was purely because of the pressure I felt and like the, and like the mandate, like this has to be good. And like, you're being trusted with a lot of like precious resources like that Vox, the startup has, and like they're dedicating to you, like go make it good. And I think that really compelled me to go out and like make something different and special. On your YouTube channel, you you kind of talk about the concept of excited accountability and you just touched on that a little bit with the accountability part of it. Could you sort of explain that to our listeners, like what that is and how it really fast tracked you into learning these skills? Yeah. So my whole thing is someone who's self-taught, like didn't, you know, go to any sort of schooling for design or animation or, or filmmaking. The only way that these skills were able to like really sink in was this concept of excited accountability, which is basically I plot myself in these situations where I'm not totally ready, but that I have the responsibility to make something great and and I've committed to it. And, and yet I'm kind of excited about it too. Like I want to make something great and people are counting on me. And it's like this perfect blend of like a healthy amount of pressure and like a big dose of excitement about the project. And for me, for a long time, that wasn't, Vox. It was in the, in the video that you're referring to. I, I tell the story of how I reached out to the State Department um, about one of their internship programs, and I offered to remake their uh, promotional video that was on their website that was like just kind of poorly done. And I pitched them on like making this animated promotional video, and I didn't really know how to animate. I'd made like one little crummy video uh, with animation. And they were like, yeah, by all means, make us a video. And suddenly you just, you, yeah, it's like a fast track. It's like, I call it like a, like a speed boost. It just like, it just propels you to say like, well, I have to learn this. Like I will do anything it takes. And like, it's almost like a survival, but it's like an excited survival instinct. It's not like the anxiety ridden one. And so I'm a big believer in that. Like I did that for a lot of years kind of put myself in those situations so that I could learn the skills. And I, and, and that's what really established a lot of the foundational stuff that I, I use today. 
Yeah, I mean, with that example you just gave, it's kind of like the excitement is obviously there to learn the skills, but you needed that little bit of accountability, like yeah. somebody expecting a piece of work from because you. Because otherwise you just, you'll just, like, you'll just quietly, and this has happened to me so many times, and I'm sure a lot of people can identify with the idea of, like, you're excited, you have the adrenaline for the first two weeks to, like, dive into this new thing you want to learn, and then it just quietly dies and like no one knows about it. No one hears about it. It just like quietly fades. Yes. And like that's like such a like such a real thing that happens to all of us when no one is keeping like no one you have no one to tell if you did it or didn't do it. And and that's what school's all about, man. Like school is like the well is basically just like one big accountability structure where it's like you have people like like basically making you stand accountable for making things or for doing things. And if you don't have school, you got to find another method. And so this was kind of my rogue like like approach for creating a structure where there was no structure. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So in that same video, you talk about this this tactic that you use to help you like hone your shooting skills, which I had to bring up because when I was learning to shoot and I'm still kind of learning to shoot, but somebody gave me this exact same piece of advice. So I really want our listeners to to hear it. Could you break down the tactic of watching videos frame by frame and, and how that helped you? Yes. Yeah, so the story I tell in that video and, and the thing that like I see as this weird like inflection point was I was in this hotel in Miami the night before I went to Cuba and I'm sitting Which was there. your first your first borders. Yeah, video, the correct? first yeah. yeah, my first like documentary. It wasn't even called Borders back then. It was just yeah. I'm making it like a pseudo documentary from Cuba. Like you know, and and so I'm sitting there in this hotel and it's like this mind blowing moment for me of like I, tomorrow I will fly to Cuba, which is like this wild place. I've been like yearning to travel for for years now and like been working just grinding at like jobs I don't like and I'm finally here and I'm given this opportunity to go make something great and like all the wheels are spinning and I'm thinking like what needs to happen for me to make sure this is great you know and so I had done this before but like this night specifically was like a night that I I spent hours I went on I started going on to Vimeo because Vimeo is where I get a lot of kind of this creative inspiration. Um, and I downloaded a lot of these travel films. You know, there's so much of that content on, on Vimeo, just like travel. Like I went to Hong Kong and I made a travel film, you know, yeah. like, and like they're beautiful and they're so well edited. And like I downloaded several. The one that sticks out in my mind, though, was this The Watchtower of Turkey, which I'm sure everyone has seen. It's like this wild, like immersive edit. And the, and the camera work and the the editing work is just like so incredibly immersive. And that one I specifically remember like feasting upon. I, I would, I downloaded it, like ripped it off some, you know, like use some site to rip it and then, and then opened up in QuickTime and like frame by frame would just watch these transitions and specifically the camera work. I'm like, what is this guy doing with his camera that like contributes to the, these movements that like you can't see when you watch it in real time, but as you're you know going through frame by frame you suddenly see like oh i see he's just he's just twisting it or he's just swiping it and like the transition from that like river to the the water being poured over ice is just a hard cut but with this camera swipe you know like you suddenly start to see the tricks mm -hmm. and so i remember annotating like writing down like I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this camera move. I'm going to make sure I, I like glide along 
the embankment of, of Havana so that then I can cut that together with like an alleyway shot. And I started to just have these like fireworks of like interest and, and, and like focus. And again, I don't know if I could have synthesized that out of just like, if I was just sitting in my room, like wanting to make something, I know some people can, like some people just get like stoked on stuff, but like, I wouldn't have been able to do that. Like I needed the mandate and I needed the responsibility of like, you're going to publish something you're spending a bunch of money to fly to Cuba. Like it's got to be good. And so I think I devoured that in a new way that then contributed to the product being just 10 times better than anything I'd ever made. Like the edits, the camera work, all of it was just so much better than anything I'd made because I was like my, my, I was just feasting upon like anything that would ensure that this would be good. It sounds so dramatic. Like I know I sound like so dramatic, but like that, that's what, that's the state I was in. And like, that's like the kind of obsessive like approach I took to this. And I really, I really attribute so much of my improvement to that kind of frame of mind. I mean, it sounds dramatic, but it also is dramatic. I mean, what you had like $2,000 in cash, which yeah, I'm sure didn't yeah. make it any less dramatic in the oh moment. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. For those who, who don't know, in Cuba, you um, you can't use like an ATM card or like any American bank cards don't work. So you just have to pack in a bunch of cash, which is just like a terrifying thing. Like if you run out of that cash, like it's over. Like, what do you do? Like sell your clothes or something? Like, you know, so yeah, like there's all this cash on the bed and like I'm just sitting there like watching you know, Vimeo videos on in quick time. Yeah. So in digital media, um, and I also work in digital media, there's so much pressure to hook viewers in the first few seconds of a video. YouTube is a little different because people are going to your videos, kind of expecting to sit down and watch it for a while. But do you feel the pressure to like hook those viewers in, in the first few seconds? Totally. Yeah. And I used to lament that. Like I used to be like, oh, like, the ADD generation, we're just incentivizing them to be instantly gratified. And like, I used to be pretty like a naysayer, kind of like a, a lot of discourse in society is now about social media. And here's the thing. I, I've actually had a big change in my paradigm over the past few years working at Vox and having such a close relationship with, you know, millions of people on, on our YouTube channel suddenly you just you develop a back and forth where you kind of understand what they want and what and how you are communicating with them and like after you make dozens of videos you really start to understand that and so the evolution that happened with me was i started to realize that it wasn't necessarily about attention spans and it wasn't necessarily about people you know having other things to do and just wanting to be entertained it was about me earning people's attention and earning the fact that, hey, there is a lot of content that you could be consuming right now. And if you're going to sit here for six minutes or eight minutes or 13 minutes, heaven forbid, I'm going to promise to you what I'm going to deliver. And then I'm going to deliver on that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think good storytelling should start with a promise and should start with a an assertion of, hey, I've done all this work to gather this thing and, and to tell this story. Here's what that is. Here's what you're going to get. And like, buckle up. And like, then people can decide if they want to stick around. And that's, that's honestly how I frame my videos. Like if you watch my videos now, like sometimes they're 10 minutes, sometimes they're 12 minutes, but the first few seconds and the first few minutes are, go or the first minute usually is like effectively a promise. It's like, this is what you're going to get. Here are, here's the type of cinematography you're going to get. 
if you want to stick around and learn about this thing, like I'm here to, to guide you through it. And I think that's like, that is actually great and okay. And I feel good about the fact that I'm hooking people, not because I'm entertaining them, but because I'm just setting their expectations. Hmm. And also just making it not like a bait and switch situation. Totally. Where, you know, like you have, you put all the like gems in the video in the first few seconds and then the rest is just like really boring, which we've all seen those videos on social media. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's the whole thing is like the only thing worse than a, a video without a good promise at the beginning is a video with a promise that like doesn't deliver and yeah. like, and then like leaves you under like under delivered. And like, to me, that is that's like the best way to alienate an audience. And like, but I, that's my whole goal is like, I'm going to set up a promise with the headline, the thumbnail and the first few seconds. Like this is what you're going to get. And then I'm going to deliver, I'm going to over deliver on that promise throughout. And that Mm -hmm. takes a lot of work, but like that's the model for us at Vox and, and specifically what I've kind of honed in on. And like people trust it now because they're like, okay, I'm not going to be bamboozled by this like really cool thumbnail. Like I'm actually going to get what they promised me. Yeah. So the whole concept of Borders is doing a bunch of stories in one location. And I know that you crowdsource story ideas, but when you buy those tickets to Colombia or or Hong Kong, do you have those stories and characters basically already planned out or are you doing, do you leave any room for discovery while you're there? Yeah. So I have a version of all of these stories planned out and it's kind of my wish list like here's what i presume this is going to play out and it's usually in the form of a of an outline with a few, a few ingredients like like visual anchors is what they call them it's like the things that i need to sh- to point a camera at to prove or to show that that the message i'm trying to say is real and and is happening because it's vox and because i'm doing explainers the the broad assertions like Hong Kong is the most expensive place to live in the world, you know, like that's that's like a fact. Like that's not there's no room for discovery within that promise. And so I I have my framework, my macro framework, like worked out, and I know what evidence I need to point my camera at to reinforce that macro framework. Okay, so like that's like the skeleton of my story, and those are the anchors of my story, and I can do that from an office. And, and we do that all the time from an office. That's a lot of Vox videos are just that. What I leave totally open for discovery is the human stories that take place within that skeleton, that take place within that scaffolding of, okay, Hong Kong's the most expensive place in the world. That's a fact. There's data. Uh, what does that mean for a human being? And what does that feel like? And what does that, what does that look like on a human level, on a micro level, not just like the macro data? And that is where the reporting and the spending time with people and following their story and experiencing their lives comes in. And that to me, that's kind of the promise of Borders is like, I'll, I'll give you a macro explanation, but then I'll show you how the humans interact with that macro explanation. Um, and, and so that's, that's wild. And sometimes, sometimes I go there and I interact with the people and it changes the 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 framework of the story and suddenly it's like oh i got this wrong like now that i see it up close like this is different than what i had had kind of formulated with the with my reading back in washington dc like this is different and and it always changes to some degree but sometimes it totally changes but for the most part the backbone of of a macro explanation can be teased out with with a laptop and wikipedia and and academic journals you know 
Mm-hmm. Are you ever like transparent with your viewers about, you know, like, oh, I, I went into the situation thinking this and then I was completely wrong? So this gets to a, a broader kind of stylistic and, and format choice with borders. I, um, I often will have these thoughts and I'll often record stuff in the field that's kind of like personal reflection. But more and more, I tend to shy away from any sort of storytelling that relies on my personal reactions or interactions with the place, which is sounds might sound ironic because like I'm on camera, like pointing the camera at myself and all these things. But I try to say, I'm going to be here to give people like a relatable face and voice and, and like guide to this place, a proxy to enter this place. But I'm not going to use that like vessel as like a place for me to, to reflect too heavily or to make this about my feelings. Um, and because I feel deeply uncomfortable already with the idea of me parachuting into other places and telling their story. Um, and especially cause that's like the tale as old as time is like white guy parachutes into other places and yeah. like tells the story. And like, I feel deeply uncomfortable and conflicted with that whole framework. And so I reconcile that by saying, okay, the thing I can censor, the thing that will mitigate this being about me is my reflection and like my personal thoughts on this. I'm going to be the kind of academic voice that like explains what's happening and helps people like guide them through. But I'm not going to be the ones with the feelings like that's for the people to have. And that's a very, it's a very natural, easy thing, especially when you're turning the camera on yourself the most natural thing to do is to say like, oh my gosh, this is how I feel or this is what I'm feeling. Or like I had this moment in in Morocco in this first season of Borders where I was up in these migrant camps and um, I got uh, like detained by the police and was the, in, and it was like a perfect emblem of the story I was trying to tell in the sense that like me being detained demonstrated the sensitivity that the Moroccan police had towards this issue and anyway, it, it kind of like nodded to the story. And so I wrote in this whole like section where I was like, and then they came and they detained me and I felt this and, and, you know, thinking like, oh, this, you know, ties into the story. And as I kind of watched it play, like as I, I saw the rough cut and stuff, like I was, it just felt like such a, like a gross juxtaposition between like the experience of these sub-Saharan African migrants who are like trying to jump this fence to get into Europe and like my experience of getting detained and like the fact that my experience of being detained would even have any place in the narrative just felt so off and wrong. Like, no, like that, that's not, that's not what this is about. Like this is about their story. So that was like a good learning thing for me. I ended up cutting that and, and have been sensitive in the future of, of that sort of thing. Um, so I guess at the end of the day, I say, okay, what, what's the purpose of me going to another place and telling a story? Why didn't I tell a story in my backyard, you know, here in the city I live? And the answer is because I can identify with an audience that speaks my language, literally and kind of figuratively, and that I can be a proxy for them, for people who maybe would never go to India or never go to Hong Kong into the cage homes. I'm suddenly someone who's all, as equally as kind of an outsider as they are, and I'm going into this place to understand it in in a way that an, only an outsider could, and thus explain it to an audience in a way that only an outsider could. And I think there is value to that 
as long as you let the people talk wh- when they need to talk and, and you are um, sensitive to the fact that you are not there to make this about your feelings and your reactions. Mm. Um, are you always like a one man band when you're going out and shoots? Um, I mean, so I guess I need to dispel the, that notion because there are so many people who support borders at home. Like, like I have as of last season, a, an assistant producer who does a lot of research and a lot of fact checking, and that's a huge support. And then since the beginning of borders, um, which is when I started to actually make this like a serialized thing. I had a research fellow who now has become a like producer, like research producer. And she's come on, she's come on a couple of trips with me now. Um, so yeah, when I'm in the field, most of the time I'm on my own, I am, uh, with a translator or a fixer usually, unless it's a Spanish speaking country in which case, or like Israel or something, in which case I'm like on my own, on my own. But yeah, like, and then there's the, the whole Vox team. Like there's my editor who like gives me notes and helps hone the story. There's the social media and engagement people who help with the crowdsourcing efforts and like all that stuff that like without that team borders would not exist. And so, yeah, I'm the one pressing the buttons most of the time out in the field and like editing and animating and all that. But like uh, Borders is so much more than just that. And it's and it's based on this this broader team dynamic of, of other people who contribute in huge ways. Hmm. Well, the reason I ask is I have kind of a technical question for you, yeah. which is when you're shooting yourself and I assume you're using a gimbal, right? Like you're, sh- you're turning the some, camera on yourself. Yeah. Some, sometimes I like lately I've been using a, like a Ronin gimbal, but before that I was just using an Osmo. So I guess, I, I guess the Osmo was, is a gimbal. Um, and then sometimes I'll just have a little gorilla pod that I use to kind of hold the camera. So when you, when you are shooting yourself, how do you like manage to record good sound and it doesn't seem like you're monitoring the sound. No, I'm not monitoring anything. Yeah. There's no flip out screen on these Sony's. Yeah. So it's like a lot of these technical things. So I used to be really into the technical components of exposure and lenses and sound. Um, I have dramatically pared down my attention to those things in the name of collecting visual evidence and being in the moment and so I started, this is like a big transformation for me, but I started shooting on like shutter priority mode instead of like full manual, uh, which was like a big like concession. I was like, I like, I was like a big like debate, like how could I ever, but I'm like, why, why would I need to shoot on, on full manual when like the camera can set exposure for me to get a shot that's decently exposed when I'm like on a boat in Haiti, like yeah. trying to have an interview and, and trying to film a good interview and like, and trying to like film good B-roll and stuff. So like I, that, that's like an emblem of probably a lot of things where I am uh, like just throwing on a mic and yeah, I mean, if you really scrutinize these pieces, the editing makes everything feel a little smoother, but like the audio is crummy and like it get relative to if I had an audio engineer with me or someone with a boom or like lavalier mics on everyone. But I, I would say that the tools have caught up with this style as well. Like I, I throw on a K2M, which is this adapter that goes on top of my Sony that turns it into these XLR outputs or inputs. And, and um, that allows me to throw on a really nice mic. And it actually is like, it's not like a, and I will 
throw a lavalier like a like a little sennheiser lavalier into one of those channels and the shotgun in the other one and suddenly i've got two so so i guess what i'm saying is like now i the the, the tools are catching up with this style and allowing me to do things that sound and feel good even if it's still running gun so you putting it in in shutter priority that's just so you can like have that part of your brain to focus and be in the moment wherever you are yeah exactly and like i and yeah, do I want to stop down to 2.8 and get like some beautiful like depth of field and and I don't get to do that because the computer is changing it to f8 and now there's like all this it's very deep shot, you know, depth of field like yes. And there are there moments where I'm like, "Oh, this is an ugly shot." Yes, but who cares? Like at least yeah. like I'm able to get most of the shots I need in when I'm running around or on the back of a moped or like whatever it is. And they're well exposed, which at the end of the day, that's all that really matters is that it, you can see what's what's being recorded. What's happening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any advice for, I mean, there's a lot of people who do like vlogging kind of content on the side. Do you have any advice for somebody who wants to turn a hobby like that into a career? Yeah. So vlogging was pioneered by people who were kind of sharing their lives and sharing usually the cool things they do in their lives and and so it was kind of commandeered i would say for the first bit as like a a a form that exists for influencers who want to show how cool their lives are and um i think what is a shame is that it's been kind of boxed in that it's like if you're a vlogger you're someone who who drives nice cars and travels to places and rides in business class and airplanes and like does that thing yeah and i'm like why can't that form, that intimate form that is pared down and lean and simple be applied to rigorous, serious, complicated issues? Like, why not? Like, why has it been boxed in and monopolized by a certain genre of creator? Certainly, it's a container that can hold much more substantive fodder. And and that's my whole thing is to prove the hypothesis that like vlogging is can be something rigorous and intense and so i guess i guess my advice to this would be like find something you want to say and and that is universally interesting and that will add value to people's lives and then use the vlog format to tell that story instead of using the vlog format to tell the story of yourself and what you're doing which i have no problem with like i do that too sometimes but like i i think that we have kind of a single dimensional view of what vlogging is and and what it like its limits and I'm like, these limit. We could, we can push this so much further, and it's a very cool format because it is so lo-fi inherently. Like when I'm in, when I'm in places, and and I want to tell the story of like some kind of complicated thing. Like it was just at the border of India and Pakistan, and like if I had gone with a crew or like tried to do like a proper shoot, I would have need needed permits. I would have needed like, I would have been way high, higher profile in terms of just making a scene. But if I show up with a small camera, whether it's like the Osmo or just like my camera with a very small lens on it and kind of talk to the camera and show a few things, um, I I just blend in and like I'm able to access things in such a friction, frictionless way. And it allows you to tell stories that maybe you wouldn't be able to if you if you really did have to do the form that is much bigger on the production side. So, again, that's nothing to say like. I'm not giving value statements on which form is better. I'm just saying we often undervalue the notion of vlogging and kind of relegate it to like one 
genre of creator and I think there's room to expand it and there's great potential in the format to tell stories in like a nimble and lean way. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Jenny Butler. Sky Dylan Robbins is our co-producer. George Itzak is our booking producer. And our original music is by Zach Wright. And Rough Cut is a part of the Video Consortium, which is a creative community of the world's top emerging nonfiction filmmakers and video journalists. We're scattered all around the globe, and we have chapters in New York, L.A., San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Milan, Paris, and with many more to come. If you want to join and become a member, check us out at videoconsortium.com. And if you want to learn more about Rough Cut, go to roughcutpodcast.com, visit us on Instagram at roughcutpodcast, and go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review, subscribe, and rate our show.